Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ Network in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce And this is a really very, very valuable and important interview. Dr. Sabrina Shu is an intervention pain management specialist in practice for 20 years. Using simple language and actual patient cases, Dr. Shu explains the physiology and pathology of pain and diseases and shares treatment options for common ailments such as back pain, neck pain, shingles, sciatica, and fibromyalgia. And she has a phenomenal co-author, Linda Spear, who does a lot of research. So welcome to MJ Network, both Dr. Shu and Linda Spear, and this is really exciting. Good morning, Fran. Good morning, Fran. So, Thank you for having me here. How did you decide to co-author the book? And Dr. Shu, how would you explain what a pain interventionist doctor is as opposed to a pain management doctor? We, I, one day Linda called me and emailed me about the possibility of co-authoring a book about pain management. I was very intrigued by the idea. First of all, I've never written a book, and so that's some, that would be some, something new and challenging for me. And then, more importantly, I thought this would be a great idea for me to let mm-hmm. more people know what interventional pain management specialty is all about and to have some informative um, writings on a book for people to have a resource to to uh, to to go for when about their common pains and aches in life. I decided mm-hmm. to do it because my my primary care doctor and I mm-hmm. discuss pain all the time because he knows mm-hmm. I write about it. And I asked him once, "What do you think is the most important book that isn't on the market today?" And he said, mm. pain management, you do it. And I have just the person for you to write it with. And he mentioned Sabrina. And I contacted Sabrina. We talked, mm. and we decided it was the perfect book to do. And that's how it came about. Well, I'm glad you did. Because this is a very, very valuable resource for, for everyone. And like I said, this book's staying with me. I'm not giving it away. Um, I learned an awful lot about different pain management. The fact that you shared cases and stories made it come to life a lot better than just saying, this is what you do, this is what you do. So what are one of the various treatments that you would give, and what areas of pain do you treat? As a specialty of pain management, we treat all kinds of pain, but in reality, about 85% of my patients will come in for uh, spine-related pain issues, neck pain, back pain, mm. lower back, mid-back pain, and uh, some joint pain related to joint arthritis. And mm. for about 5 to 10% of patients will have cancer-related pain or nerve pain from various reasons, including trauma, damage, or um, viral infection, like herpes, viral infection. Um, but in general, my patients are all adults with um, uh, chronic pain, meaning pain that lasts lasting more than three months. Wow, that, that, that's, a lo- that's an awful lot. So you, you define them, but how did you... De- um, the chapter that I found most exciting because everybody's been complaining about that walking in the street is sciatica. How did you diagnose that and what type of treatments are needed? Because 
you have a whole lot of different kind of pain treatments, and the book covers quite a bit, which is great. But the chapter on sciatica is very, very important because I've listened to people in the street walking into the bakery and go, my back, my sciatica is bothering my back, right? my leg bothers me. How do you diagnose that, and what type of treatments are needed in order to for the person not to want to sit on a chair all day? Fran, you're absolutely correct. Sciatica is very, very common. We call mm-hmm. it sciatica as a layman's term because the sciatic nerve mm-hmm. runs in the back of the butt mm-hmm. going to the back of the leg. But in fact, 99% of the time, the reason for people to have sciatica is because they have a pinched nerve in the lower back. Mm-hmm. The sciatic nerve is supplied by nerve roots in the lower back and with wear and tear or with Injuries such as a fall or car accident, mm. the exit point of these nerve roots from the back may get pinched when it may get small. One mm. of the very common reasons is if um, in the spine there are bones and discs. The discs are supposed to be in mm. a well-defined place. Um, they are cushions for the bones in the in our spine. But if for any reason, for trauma, um, for a car, from a car accident, or just the way um, from wear and tear, the, if the disc um, bulge towards the back, it will pinch on the nerve. And mm. because that nerve runs from the lower back all the way to the butter, to the back of the thigh, to the foot, mm. that's why we feel pain shooting down like that, and we call it sciatica. The diagnosis to the real diagnosis will be a MRI. An MRI will be able to see mm-hmm. whether or not anything is pressing on the nerve. But usually before we send patients to do an MRI, we, we have an idea, okay, this is probably a pinched nerve. We will usually try conservative treatments such as physical therapy, uh, NSAIDs, including ibuprofen, Aleve, mm-hmm. Tylenol, hot or cold compresses. Usually, after two to six weeks, depending on how serious it is, and we let patients try these uh, conservative treatments. If they don't get better, then we send patients to, to get an MRI. If MRI confirms our diagnosis, then the patients will have options of having more what we call invasive treatments, and the mm. next step will be a steroid injection. As that's I mentioned, the, mm. the the nerve root is inflamed, so to calm the inflamed nerve root down, the fastest treatment would be to put steroid right next to the nerve root to calm it down, and that's called a mm-hmm. steroid injection in the epidural space. Yeah, I've had steroid injections. They are painful, but they do help to a point, yeah. So, Linda, what type of research did you have to do before you wrote this book and gave her, you know, medical books have to be, you know, documented and you have to know what you're writing, and everything in this book is, is so true. Actually, because what I do is after I read a book like this, I look up the, I look it up myself to see that what was written is really valid, and it is, I know. That's just me. Um, What kind of research did you do? Was started at home. My husband does have sciatica. Oh, God. I researched that carefully long before I met Sabrina. But when I did, and we decided to do this book, we researched Mm -hmm. together to the point where we listed everything that Mm -hmm. that, um, Sabrina mentioned and more. And I researched further and went into the materials that are written con- constantly on, on an ordinary basis these days and su- submitted them to Sabrina, and we decided on what we would use and what we wouldn't. We worked together every Sunday for months. That, that is really amazing. Because, like I said, there was, so I, I listened to people – in the hall, whatever, I don't say anything, I just listen, and and my heart goes out to some of them, because does weight have anything to do with some of these pains, too? If someone is extremely overweight, will that exasperate 
the pain that they feel in sciatica or their back or any place else? Yes, unfortunately, if a body has to carry more weight than it's designed for, all mm-hmm. joints will become overworked and you will see more wear and tear. And the mm-hmm. spine is the same. And therefore, the spine will have more wear and tear. And that will result in a, a, a fast track of the mm-hmm. openings getting smaller and therefore the nerves are more vulnerable to being pinched and yes overweight patients mm-hmm. are tend to have more episodes of sciatica I could imagine my cousin weighs 300 pounds and I said to her oh. you might not feel the I weigh 90 I weigh 102 pounds there's, there's no weight oh. problem here <laughs> so no. this is the other thing how did you decide which cases to share, and how do your patients express their type of pain? I mean, people come in and just say, my back hurts, this hurts, or that. I guess you have to ask specific questions so that you can localize what it is that they really are having a problem with. So how do, you, how do, they, how do your patients verbalize what's wrong with them, and how many ways are there to treat chronic pains without opiates? As you can imagine, we have many different kinds of patients that will come to the office. Mm, yeah. Some are more, some are more comprehensive in terms of describing their mm-hmm. symptoms and what they feel. Some are more stoic and quiet and requires more probing and more um, of us to try to get them to answer specific mm. questions and. We usually will try to identify where the patient hurts the most. Some patients mm. will come in, oh, I hurt from head to toe. I, I hurt my shoulders, knees, mm. my neck, middle back, everywhere. Then I usually would tell them, if I were to treat one area in your body, where would you like me to treat first? Mm-hmm. Then we go from there. We try to focus on one item. And then I usually ask them where the pain is. Then mm-hmm. they will, I ask them to use one finger to point out to me where the pain is. And as I mentioned in the book, some patients will get actually very offended. Well, Dr. Xu, didn't mm-hmm. you read my MRI? Didn't you know where my pain is? It's very common for me to see that, actually. But the mm-hmm. fact is all studies show can show a few areas that's wrong in your body but that doesn't mean that every one of mm-hmm. them will cause problems yeah. or cause pain so i usually do not look at their mri or x-ray results i'll ask them to point to me where it hurts mm-hmm. and then how it hurts if it hurts them constantly or only with a certain activity and what they have tried in the past and if this is something brand new or they've had them on and off for years, and then and then see what imaging studies they've already had, and if if that's enough for me to make a diagnosis, if not, mm. I will send them to have more diagnosis. And as I mentioned, usually we try to offer patients more conservative treatments like physical therapy, over-the-counter medications, mm-hmm. and uh, acupuncture, chiropractor. If none of the above help, they need something more, then we try to see if there's any injections that we can target the area to calm down inflammation and make people feel better. And then once they feel better, we try to encourage them to exercise to strengthen mm-hmm. the muscles around there and to lose weight. And we try to avoid opioids altogether if possible. That's good. We all... that, that is good. That That is a positive thing. Um, I'm noticing that from different, like I said, family members, opiates are the first order of a, of, a, of a prescription. Everybody prescribes opiates, what happens when you look. But the, the case that really got me was the case where you talked about the patient that was abusing them and selling methadone. How do you deal with that? And how do you tell somebody, 
I'm not going to deal with you anymore because that's that's dangerous. It is very difficult. Those patients, as you can imagine, are are our headache patients. First of all, mm-hmm. we have to so-called catch them. Some patients are yes. very sophisticated. They know the system. They know how to game the system. As I mm-hmm. mentioned in the book, there are two brothers trying to get medication from me, and yep. they fit. They follow all the rules, and I didn't have any suspicion they're doing anything wrong until uh, another mm-hmm. patient of mine, in, you know, gave me some more information. In in the book, I had in I had, when I encountered these patients, I will have them come to the office and present to them. Okay, this is what you didn't do correctly, and uh, by the way, we do have them sign a contract. The contract mm-hmm. is basically agreement between patients and doctors, usually pain management doctors, to agree that the patient will take the medication only as prescribed. They cannot take more. They can mm-hmm. take less, but they cannot take more. And they have to um, follow the rules and not to go to any other doctors or prescribers to get control substance. Mm-hmm. They have to come to only your office and one office. And if they uh, find out that they are getting prescriptions from other doctors or they take any street in illegal drugs, then they will be discharged from the office. So if we found out patients have any of these behavior, then we send them, uh, we have two ways to discharge the patients. I, at the beginning, will usually have them come to the office. I will tell them why I cannot keep them as a patient, and then I'll give them, We, as physicians, we are mm-hmm. required to provide them with a tapering schedule or a month of medication supply to prevent them from going into withdrawal or send them to appropriate doctors. And so we have mm-hmm. to also provide them with information where to go next if you don't want to take a patient and give them some other possible doctor's information and office phone numbers for them to call. Do they ever so, give you a hard time about that? Yes. You can imagine some people are mm-hmm. very angry when I mm-hmm. inform them that I cannot be their doctor. As I described in the book, the yeah. patient that I wrote about they were very, very angry when they left my office. They threatened to come back. And mm-hmm. I, at times, were very worried about my safety and my staff's safety because we are a, we are a office that opens to the public and, mm-hmm. and we have office hours and everyone knows that we are in the office. And if... If they want to do anything to revenge, they could. And as you see on news or TV, there are patients who are angry enough to take a gun to a doctor's office. So this is oh yes, <laughs> in the back of our mind, our mind all the time. That's scary. And you don't have a guard there or anything else to make sure that they don't come up to your office or into your office. A lot of the offices I'm go- that I'm going that I go to. Um, like White Plains, um, or not White Plains, or White Plains um, physicians, they have a guard downstairs, two of them. And if you, they don't like what they see, they don't let you go up. <laughs> They're really careful. So, Linda, have you ever observed doctors? Go on. Go on. Well, I, I was just going to um, say something about the guards. Unfortunately, we don't yeah. have guards in our office, and I believe a lot of small offices will not have the co- capacity yeah. to hire guards. That's sad. Have you ever observed Dr. Shu and the patients at any time, Linda? Have you, and maybe, can well, you not, tell us about the experience? The that I've, not in the sense that I've observed her due to her work. But as I said, my husband has sciatica and goes to Dr. Shu as a patient. So I'm there in the office when she treats him, and he walks out a different man. That is, that is fantastic. That is yes. great to know that there was somebody out there that's actually not prescribing all the drugs in the world, but they're actually fixing the problem. 
So what she is? Take them, which yeah. is a good thing. I mean, it's not that she offered them, but if she did offer yeah. them, he would not take opioids. He doesn't believe in them either. Neither but do another I. Another thing I want to discuss is that yeah. we did several a couple of years ago. We went to an to a marijuana farm for medical mm-hmm. marijuana. And we found that it does, in fact, help a great deal of people without harming them. We enjoy we medical that marijuana. Medical yes. marijuana? Yes. We'll get to that in a minute, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of people that do take that. So yes. What is iStop, and why is that a valuable resource, and how many doctors use it? Sabrina? iStop. iStop stands for Internet System Mm -hmm. for Tracking Over Prescribing. Mm -hmm. We are, in fact, required by the state of New York to use iStop every time we prescribe controlled substance. It's essentially an Mm -hmm. Internet-based database for us to see when the patient picked up controlled substance. So all opioids benzodiazepines, all these uh, controlled substances, we will be able to see if the patients have used any. And mm. in, the, in the past, before this system came about, we had no idea if patients were telling us the truth. We'll ask patients, oh, when did you pick up the last dose, uh, last prescription of oxycodone? They can mm. say whatever they like. And they can tell you one pharmacy that they go to, even I always call the pharmacy or call the patient's last prescriber to verify, but mm. that's only part of the picture. The patient can have multiple pharmacies and go to multiple prescribers, yeah. and there's no way for us to know. But since this iStop came about, it has been so much better for us as prescribers to understand whether or not the patients are being honest and having any behavior that we uh, need to be cautious of. So the, uh, every time when the patient comes to the office, we go on the database, which is mm-hmm. very easy to do, and then we will see all the history in the past 12 months. What about somebody like that that has a brother or a sister or somebody that is using opiates and they're getting it, even though they're really not in pain, somehow they convince the doctor to get it and they give it to your patient. Does that ever happen? Would they actually share I the believe, drugs? I believe that it happens more than what we like to see. In yeah. that case, you're absolutely correct. I still would not have been able to pick up these problems. That's why we also do urine uh, drug toxicology screening tests. Meaning mm-hmm. when the patient comes to the office, we take their urine, their urine would have metabolized or remnants mm-hmm. of evidence of what they have used in the past um, few days or few weeks, depending on what they use. And it, then we will see if the urine drug tox screen results are matching what their pharmacy record shows or what they are telling us Sometimes mm. we do identify that medications or substances that are not supposed to show up, meaning they did not disclose to us, they did not tell us, or it's not what they pick up from the pharmacy under their own names. Mm. That's, that's so scary. It is, a complicated, it is a complicated system, and there are many ways for us to try to verify each patient, but there are many ways for people to gain the system as well. I just wonder sometimes because people have family members that are doctors and they'll write prescriptions for them too. They have to be careful with that. And, of course, I don't think any pharmacist in their right mind is going to give somebody a prescription because they'll write it. They can't. So what does HCAHPS stand for? Um, That is a... That is, I believe, a um, agency that mm-hmm. overlooks at all the regulatory uh, guidelines and mm-hmm. helping us to make sure we're doing the right thing. 
I wonder how many people like yourself actually go on these websites to see the, the, how many drugs people take and stuff like that. I wonder how many people actually take the time to check. Because from what I see from other people, family members and friends, the first thing they get is oxycodone or opiates or diluted or something, rather than do what you do and ask them where it hurts and prescribe, like I would agree, with, with Motrin or Tylenol or something like that. So, tell us about cannabis and medical marijuana. And do people ever have a bad reaction to them? And it, and it does work, as you're saying, Linda. It works. Your husband does take medical marijuana? He tried it. He didn't like it. But that's mm. just him. I have friends that do have pain who take it, and it works well, and they have a perfect example of what, why it is mm. out there and why it works. Maybe it's the yeah, taste or something. As Linda currently described, mm. medical marijuana mm. is not a medical drug. It works mm. like any medication mm. that we have available. It always works like miracle drugs for a small subset of people, mm -hmm. and it always doesn't work for another subset of people, but most of us are in the middle. Most of us usually will get some um, results from a medication, including medical marijuana, but medical marijuana does have side effects. So it's a matter of balancing side effects and uh, results that you are looking for. And some people, it will work out, some people not. So in New York State, mm -hmm. it has been, over the past five years, it ha there has been more and more availability of medical marijuana. And I actually have certified mm -hmm. a few hundred patients for the use of medical marijuana. I think about probably 50% of people choose to continue to use, mainly for um, the 50% the, the, the that do not choose to continue to use, some of them because it didn't work, some of them because the cost mm. of medical marijuana is still too much for them to accept mm. because it's not covered by insurance. Everything is out of pocket, and Whoa. a lot of these patients a lot of these patients are um, elderly patients or they are not well enough to have a substantial income or some of them are, are on disability. So this would be an added burden for them financially. So they choose not to use medical marijuana. And unfortunately, some of them do go back to oxycodone or other opioids because it's $20 versus about $200 per month that they have to use, that, that they have to spend. That's horrible. Either, either way, you, you can't win. Either way, you can't win. And oxycodone and Vicodin, I've never, I would never take any of that, never, nor have I ever taken any of that. But, and, and these things are prescribed, like, 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 like you're taking candy. I mean, they just walk in, some doctors just say, well, we're going to give you this, going to give you that. And the patient says, can I have all of those? And they give them all of those. That's, da that's dangerous. Nobody monitors that. Nobody monitors how many pain management, how many pain uh, types of opiates a person gets from one doctor at the same time. I would say, I would say most doctors do um, not monitor mm -hmm. these patients. And, in fact, mm -hmm. a lot of doctors choose not to prescribe opioids and they send patients yeah. to us because they said they're not comfortable with managing them. And mm -hmm. they are very conscientious regarding not to over-prescribe. But, unfortunately, there's always a small amount of people, doctors and prescribers, mm -hmm. are not mm -hmm. careful enough and in the book I described, a mm. patient came in and she was prescribed 1,200 pills of oxycodone for one month. Mm -hmm. I truly thought that was a mistake, but it's verified when I called the pharmacy that it was indeed what was given to the patient. So these things were not seen that carefully, I mean, not mm. um, frequently, uh, fortunately. Um, I do have to point out that opioids, including oxycodone, Dilaudid, and all these um, uh, medications with bad names, they do have a place in medicine. They do have a place in 
some mm-hmm. patients' management, but I totally agree that we need to use it very carefully, very yeah. uh, sparingly. Uh, it's, it's hard to they're believe used, that there are people that ten, ten of them a day, all ten of them a day that you just mentioned, and more. I don't know how they walk they're around. Used, they're used frequently after surgery. Yeah. As a necessity, but for short periods of time and short amounts. But that's the only yeah. way a lot of doctors will use them. No, yes, these people get um, them permanently forever. They 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 go every once a month. They go and they get it refilled. That's really scary. So here's here's a problem that everybody goes through. Most people, it's osteoporosis. Oh God. So birth is osteoporosis. How do you deal with that? I mean, everybody in the world gets some kind of osteopenia, osteoporosis, whatever. How do you deal with that? Um, with with exercise or any specific medicine, or you just have to deal with it? Osteoporosis has become a very common problem Mm -hmm. as we live longer. Usually, especially women, Asian women or Caucasian women who are slender and thin are more prone to have osteoporosis. And it happens after menopause. The mm-hmm. absorption of calcium, vitamin D, are severely slow, slow down, and while we, our body loses our bones. And to, the best way to deal with osteoporosis or osteopenia, which is the, the starting of osteoporosis, is to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we need to keep our calcium and vitamin D supplement, even um, since our starting at our 30s, and then also exercise. Exercise is very important. Uh, We are referring to weight-bearing exercise. So walking, some small weight training, dumbbells are very important. But it's never too late to do any of that. If you think, oh, I didn't start doing it in my 30s, but now I'm in my 70s, is it too late? It's never too late. We always should pay attention to our dietary intake of calcium, vitamin D, and um, weight-bearing exercise. Mm-hmm. It, and then after, I think, age 60, you should go to your doctor to have a bone density scan every two mm-hmm. years. Um, I'm not sure if it's 60 or 50 or 55, but talk to your doctor about bone density scan every two years to track your progress. And uh, if, unfortunately, some people are genetically more prone to have osteoporosis, even if a patient has done everything right, she may still develop osteoporosis and develop fracture. Mm. And this, we have to be extremely careful when, uh, with our seniors not to have any faults. Of course, nobody wants to have faults, but when I talk to my patients, a lot of them have hardwood floor or they have little rocks all over their house. Those are full risks. And anything mm-hmm. that's put in the center of their walkway, they can mm-hmm. trip and fall. And these little things in life, if we pay attention, we can decrease the chance of falling. And if a patient develops fracture, of course, then you go to mm-hmm. the doctor and get treated. Wow. Before I forget... Wednesday, we have a panel with four New York Times authors, and we're going to talk about how do they create their mysteries. So for people that want to learn to write, this is great. On the 19th, this is really going to be interesting. Um, From California, (laughs) I never do this at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Dr. Christina (laughs) Laporte, heart surgeon in California, one of the top cardiologists, is going to talk about her book, Dissection. And if you ever not take care of your heart, you're going to want to take care of it double after you read this book. Let me tell you, it's scary. On the 23rd, we have um, Kayos at Carnegie Hall. And on the 25th, I get to show off my expertise in reading. My professor and I are going to talk about um, how to assess a child with reading disabilities, and I get to tell you how to remediate it. It should be interesting at 10 o'clock on the 25th. And to end the month, 
what better than ending it on the 26th with Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, the cabinet of Dr. Lang. And that's just coming up. There's a lot more coming up on MJ Network. And two two specific pain things that I know that family members have, myofascial pain and fibromyalgia. How do you know the difference between those two types of pain? And what happens when somebody is diagnosed with those? Because those are really difficult. As I mentioned in the book, they are actually two different terms in yeah. the medical field regarding myo, uh, fibromyalgia. One term thing is that exists because there are a lot of patients mm-hmm. with soft tissue pain that we can't find any explanation. The other term thing is that we cannot find any reason yet, but there might be some underlying reason. And but there is no fibromyalgia per se as an entity. And but no matter what we call it, these patients do have generalized muscle aches and pains. And the treatment is actually to exercise, not to take mm. pain medicine. I do yeah. have patients walk in on high dose of opioids because they have fibromyalgia, that is not a, a ticket for patients to get a lot of pain medication. Mm. That I, I tell them, then you really need to taper off your opioids because some opioids will actually cause patients to have what we call opioid-induced hyperalgesia, meaning the more pain mm-hmm. medicine you take, the more sensitive your body becomes, mm. and you have more pain, and therefore it's a vicious cycle. So for these patients with um, soft tissue pain, we encourage them to exercise. When you exercise, the endorphin will make you feel better. And to do physical therapy, to have massage, to stretch. If they have what we call a trigger point, meaning some patients will have spasms, and thus that uh, the muscle spasm can cause a lot of pain and sometimes radiate mm-hmm. to different areas, then we can do some targeted treatment. Um, one treatment that uh, sometimes works well would be trigger point injection, and we put mm-hmm. some um, put a needle in the uh, muscle area with spasms, and the needling can break up the spasm and, and make them mm-hmm. feel better. Do they ever give the needle in the face? Do they ever need a needle in a specific face, or is it some other part of the body, like the neck or the shoulder or something like that? Usually this kind of trigger point injection is giving in a muscular area, so the neck, the back, mm-hmm. face. We do give needles in the face for some nerve pain or facial pain, uh-huh. yeah, for different reasons. So, Linda, question. What, what, what did you, which type of pain would you say was the most prevalent? Linda, what should all patients ask questions, and what did you learn by doing this book on pain management? Because this is a great resource, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Shu to describe, like, one particular patient that stands out. So what, what did you learn by, do, by doing, the, doing the research for this book about pain management? I learned that the most important thing to do is to ask the expert. You don't have to pop a pill to get a result. I want to talk to you for my husband. Fortunately, I am pain-free. But he is like me. He doesn't like to pop pills. So fortunately, Mm. when we went to her, he was able to be treated with a, a treatment which is, which is commonplace but very effective. Mm. And that's what I learned the most, that the pills are not the answer. The Advil, the Naproxen, yes, once in a while they're important and they're necessary. Mm. But you, you don't really need the opioids in order to get pain relief. And I learned that as I was researching and as I worked with Sabrina. That That is very, very important. I also learned a long time ago, when you go to a new doctor, I usually keep, uh, I have a list of questions in front of me. So I know that I don't go off point, and I know what I'm asking if it concerns a specific, after the doctor speaks, I'll have a list of questions that I need 
think need to be asked. I wonder how many people actually come in with questions that are, you know, pertinent that you can answer that will help them with their treatment. I I, I really like those patients who come in with a list of questions. It does take a little time for us to answer mm-hmm. all of them, but it shows that the patient takes initiative mm-hmm. and they're interested in their own health and mm-hmm. they do not leave without questions unanswered. Um, mm. I unfortunately want to see more of these patients in my office. You're, you're unique because most of the time when they ask questions, they don't want to give you answers. They're just like, why are you asking that? <laughs> because maybe it's because I don't want to have to get the treatment. A lot of times I'll call and they'll say, um, this is the problem, do I need to come? And they'll, it's like, since this oh, since this COVID problem and the flu flu I can understand, it's like it's hard to get anything done in some places. So, why should uh, why should they look to other treatments? And what valuable lessons can we all learn after reading this book? Besides, opiates are not the answer, people. I, I think, think the most. Go ahead. Go ahead, Linda. I think the most important thing you have to learn is that pain is everywhere and in everyone at every time in their lives. And you have to know that you can't treat it by yourself. Reading about it on the Internet will help. Going to a specialist is the best way to handle pain. I agree with you. I would like to echo, Linda, I think... What we need to uh, understand is pains and aches are part of life. I don't want to be mm-hmm. negative here, but mm-hmm. our bodies are like machines. They do have wear and tear. They do have problems. We cannot expect us to live forever mm-hmm. like in our 20s. So when we have pains and aches, there's, there's there are a lot of um options that we have however mm-hmm. we need to be educated regarding what's going on and mm-hmm. to also have a realistic um, expectation of treatment I have some patients that will come in very frustrated very unhappy and they will mm-hmm. ask me Dr. Shu I've been coming here three times I got three injections how come I still have pain I would say, now, are you able to do more activities? Are you able to sleep better? Yes, but my pain is still there. I'm able mm-hmm. to better, but I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still not 100%. And I want to go back to what I did um, last year or, you know, uh, whatever the activity that they're looking for, and I'm just not very happy that I cannot do it. Well, we cannot expect us to do the same thing in our 80s compared to the activity in our 60s or 40s. So we have to make adjustments. We have to have realistic mm. expectations of what our bodies can do or cannot do, but at the same time make the best of what we have and do not give up. Keep exercising. Keep taking your health into your own hands. Well, I, I am a one of firm believer in losing weight because at one point um, I was taking tapazole because my Graves' disease decided to bother me, and my thyroid was annoyed with me, I guess. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I lost all the weight. I weigh 103 pounds now, and I'll never gain the weight. But what happens when the pain is not caused by age or anything like that? What happens when it's caused by something else that I'd rather not say? And it's not gonna, it's something that's not curable and it can't go away. How do you deal with it then? And that makes it kind of hard. Yes. If the pain is persistent, what we call persistent severe pain, and not responding to any of our treatments, then we have to, we have to first, first to see the source of this pain. Can we surgically get rid of the source, the origin of the pain? Mm-hmm. Um and some, for example, some sciatica patients, they don't respond to any injections, but we identify the nerve that's being pinched, 
and we send the patient to surgeon. If the surgeon can do surgery to remove the mechanical mm. squeezing of the nerve, then the patient uh, ultimately usually do better and, and um, recovers. And if the, the pain source is from, unfortunately, say cancer, if the cancer cannot be removed, then we mm. have to treat that. For cancer pain patients, the treatment mm. Um, is very different. In this case, we do use opioids to try mm. to provide the best um, relief for patients while minimizing their side effects to, to encourage them to enjoy their activity um, while have less pain and less suffering. So what happens group of patients, when, the, when the pain is caused by the surgery, not the surgeon's fault, but as a result of the surgery, you have permanent nerve damage or permanent pain, and there's the, the, every, the, the source of the problem was removed, but there's nothing you could do. So how do you deal with that? So we do see these patients, unfortunately. In, in medicine, mm-hmm. as we all know, nothing works on 100%. Yeah. Even if the surgery was done by textbook 100% perfectly, your bodies do not follow textbooks and they don't heal yeah. the right way. Some patients may have scar tissues that will pinch on the area again. Some patients may not heal um, because they have osteopenia or they don't mm. heal strong. Um, the, the area does, uh, does not um, remain strong. They collapse. These patients, uh, we call them failed back surgery patients, and they unfortunately they do come to my, our office. So there are some so-called advanced procedures that we can do. One of them is called spinal cord stimulator. It's mm-hmm. a device that we implant into the patient's spine, and it's a very sophisticated device. Patient can use like a remote control to turn it on, turn it off. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it sends electrical current to the spinal cord. It's essentially like massaging the spinal cord. So mm. when you say, when you, if you, for example, if you have pain in the knee, you, you massage your knee, you feel better. Even though you don't change anything in the knee, your problem is still there, but you feel better because uh, your brain gets distracted by the massage. So this device works the same way. The device sends electrical current to massage the spine to distract your brain, and therefore you feel better. So this is something that we can do for those patients, like you mentioned, who had surgery but continue to have pain. What happens if the pain, one last question, is in, is in your face or your neck? What do you do then? What happens if it's permanent pain in your face? How do you deal with that? Because it's not, you know, spinal cord or anything like that. So facial pain. That's a tough one. (laughs) Yes, facial pain is tough. There are um, one common cause for facial pain is actually shingles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And also something called uh, trigeminal neuralgia. So the the nerve, the trigeminal nerve is being sometimes pinched or irritated by a blood vessel mm-hmm. or by something mechanically uh, in the base of the brain, and they keep squeezing on the nerve, and patients will feel pain shooting to the face, depending on which branch of the nerve is um, irritated. So um, other than medications, if the patients still don't do well with the medications, there mm-hmm. are injections we can do. We can put some cortisone next to the Mm. The nerve, uh, where what we call uh, the ganglion, where the nerve uh, collects itself, and to calm down the nerve. If that doesn't help, then there are surgeries that can be done to fix whatever that's pressing on the trigeminal nerve, if that's the case. Um, or some patients do not do well with these um, surgeries, and they can... Uh, consider also a nerve stimulator. So in this case, it will not be a spinal cord stimulator. It will be something called a peripheral nerve stimulator. Mm -hmm. The idea is the same. No matter where the nerve is, even on the face, if we push something called a generator, the the generator will will be connected to uh, what we call a lead, 
that lead will be placed next to the nerve and send electrical current to massage mm-hmm. on the nerve with your control. So the idea is exactly the same. It's just a different location, including the face. Well, before we end, what's next? Are you guys going to write another book, another follow-up, more cases? I'd love to. <laughs> I don't know whether Sabrina wants to or not. That was a long, drawn-out story for us, which we all enjoyed. Yes, I enjoy writing this this book very much, and um, I, it makes me think about and appreciate my work and my patience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would love to write something again when um, I accumulate another yeah book book worth of uh, material. Well, um, that is. So, where can everyone learn more about both of you and your work? And Linda, are you writing anything by yourself again? I'm writing fiction at the moment. I'm writing about human trafficking at the northern border of Canada and Rhode Island. Oh, nice. And, yes, it's a very exciting, very informative book, but also very scary. I know. Well, my new book came out last week, everybody. I write horror. Sorry, I don't write medical. I write horror. And it's uh, uh, called Faces Behind the Stone, Accusations. My, my Everybody complains that I never say anything about what I do. Um, it's told from the point <laughs> of view of the, of the person that died who was wrongly accused, whose voices were silent, or who deserved what I did to them. And it's on Amazon. Wow. And I've got a whole bunch of five-star reviews so far. And I'm very proud of myself because I actually accomplished it and did it. So where can everybody Terrific. learn more about you and your work, and where can everybody get this book? Because it's a really valuable resource, people. Well, Thank you Amazon, for, of course, uh, source. Yeah, friend, I would like to congratulate um, uh, about your book. And our book, like yours, is also available on Amazon.com. And mm-hmm. I also have a personal website. It's called shuemd.com, S-H-U-E-M-D.com. It has my information about my where I work. My office mm-hmm. is in Harrison, New York, in Westchester County, and I do see patients there from Monday to Friday every day, full time. That's amazing because how many doctors see patients? Well, and what happens if there's, God forbid, an emergency? You, you do call back, right? Yes, yes, we do call back, and we have uh, a call center, um, even on the weekends and holidays, when patients call, they do send texts to us so we can um, we can uh, call patients back. That's amazing. Well, I thank you very much, both of you, for today. This is fantastic. This is a very, Thank very you. important topic. When it hurts is a very valuable resource. And like I said at the beginning of the top of the interview, this book's not going anywhere. It's staying with me. I'm not giving it away. Thank you. And if anybody wants one, you're going to have to get your own this time. Thank you so much, Dr. Shu. Thank you so much, Linda. Everybody have a positive day. Have a great day. And bye. bye. Thank you very Thank much. You.